Father, we have seen your movement in the last years to prepare us, to move us closer to the vision, to fulfill what you have instilled in us, Lord, what you would have us do as a body in this area at this time with these people. So, Father, we thank you specifically for Jan and Anu for their dedication to this. We thank you for others that have served in this effort as well, for all the time that they have given for the heart in which they serve. And Father, we know that there are people right now listening to this that have the experience, that have the skills and the strengths, Lord, that you want to utilize in this effort. And we thank you for that as well. And we just look forward for not only the start of this community resource center, but also the finishing of it and the ways in which you're going to work through it and use us to reach out to this neighborhood and this community. And we just pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Last, I guess it was about two months ago, my wife and I were doing a Chesapeake Bay fishing trip. And the departure point was uh, Kent Island. And those of you that have gone to the beaches heading east from here, you go over the bridge from Annapolis, and as soon as you come down on dry land, that's Kent Island. So uh, we went over the afternoon before because we had to be at the fishing boat at like 6 a.m., And we were just kind of wandering around looking at beaches and marinas and seaside towns. And we wandered down one street. And as we were driving down the road, we noticed the houses on this street were kind of odd. The houses on the left looked very normal. The houses on the right, there was something weird about them. They were typical architectural style, probably built in the 50s or 60s. They were, you know, brick and siding and all the usual colors and styles. They were kind of modest looking homes. They weren't flashy or anything like that, but there's something a little off, like the proportions were weird. And by the time we'd gone two or three blocks down the road, we realized, you know, in a normal house, when you're looking at it from the front, you've got the house and you've got the garage. And the house is like 75% of the footprint and the garage is like 20 or 25%. These, the house was like 50% and the garage was 50%. Weird, they had the same size doors on the front that your garage has or mine, but the garages were bigger and deeper and taller. And by the time we got to the end of the street, we realized that for a backyard, these houses had an airstrip. And every house, that wasn't a garage, that was a hangar. And so they had these little doors in front for driving in the car, but they had these enormous doors in the back for driving out the plane. And it's called Kent Moore Airfield. It is one of the few privately owned public airstrips, like the HOA runs the airstrip, basically. On their website, they say, you know, we share the work, which is basically cutting the grass in the pasture. And you're welcome to come join us. Just email us, let us know if you're coming, you know, and you're welcome to land here. Oh, and there's some great restaurants if you just want to fly in and walk the three blocks down to the marina. It's like a really cool place, but when you're driving by and you're looking at it, it doesn't fully make sense. It's hard to put your finger on it until you know who owns these houses and what the purpose of the houses is. I think that's true also when we start talking about sacred space. And we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the building that we're fixing to build. If you're from Texas or somewhere in the south, fixing to build. That means it's coming, it's soon. And as Ed would say, we're building a building. Okay, so this is happening. And I was there, I saw him sign the letter of commitment. So this is happening, okay, just want to say that. But it feels appropriate for us at this point then, before, you know, we get to like throwing dirt around and clearing trees and their dump trucks over there and everything. Let's just take a moment and think about this. For me, this is a really exciting time because 
I've been in ministry since 1982. I have not been a part of a church that owned a building since 1986. So almost 30 years I've been involved in helping to get churches started, and they've all been portable churches, rental space. We've met at the YWCA, movie theaters, hotels, schools, people's basements, the Love's Backyard. We've done all kinds of stuff where we were in people's homes, just kind of like any space available, and this is going to change for us as a church family. We're almost 18 years into things at Gateway, and we've never had a building to call our own. And that's going to change. So part of what would be good for us to do is to think about who owns this building and what the purpose of the building is. And that's what I want us to to think about here a little bit this morning. I want to talk to you about God-honoring space. And there's lots that could be said about God-honoring space. There are a lot of different angles you could come at this from. But what I want to point out to you this morning, just one overarching idea that I want you to grab, is that God-honoring space includes room not just for godly people, but also for those who are distant or disconnected from God. So if we want space that really pleases God, that reflects who he is and what he values, then it has to include space not only for those who already know him, but it has to include space that's appealing and attractive and comfortable for those who don't yet know him. And I want to make the biblical case that God is pleased when we make room for those who don't yet know him. I guess some of you would remember this story about Jesus clearing the temple. There are actually two accounts of this. Early in his earthly ministry, Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers and the merchants, and John records that in chapter 2 of his gospel. And then a couple years later, the week before Jesus is crucified, it's Passover week, so lots of people from all over that region of the world, Jewish pilgrims, come to town to celebrate the Passover feast, and Jesus steps in to the temple again, and Mark's biography gives us the details, so you can read along on the screen. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, most of the time in Scripture, we find that Jesus is compassionate. He's he's merciful. He's gentle. He's self-controlled. At worst, he might ask some religious expert a vexing question. He might, you know, go to one of those religious elites, and he kind of tweaks them a little bit by asking them a question he knows they can't answer. But here, Jesus is flat-out angry. He's violent. He overturns tables. He chases people around this picture doesn't show it very well, sorry. One of them is Rembrandt, one of them is El Greco, but uh, there are hundreds of paintings from the classical era, from the 1500s and 1600s of this incident in Scripture. And I think it intrigues people. I don't know if that's what it really looked like. Unfortunately, here Jesus doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, so it's, they're somewhat realistic. But this was just to kind of capture the idea of what was going on there. And I would say that Jesus here is angry in part because the temple leaders are making a percentage off of this commerce that's going on in the temple. And that frustrates him because the temple is supposed to be a place of wholehearted worship, of authentic confession, of heart-to-heart connection with God. It's supposed to be the kind of place where genuine relationship with God is fostered. And the leaders of the temple, the chief priest and his clan, the ones who ran the operation there, they had made deals 
to get a percentage of the money changing that had to go on. If you were Jewish and you were coming to celebrate Passover, you had to pay your temple tax in the form of a Hebrew shekel. But the coins of commerce back then were Roman coins, the drachma, and they had an image of Caesar on it, and that would have been blasphemous to offer that to God, the, a coin that bore the image of someone else who claimed to be God. So you had to come just like, you know, at an airport in a foreign country and, and exchange your money for Hebrew currency. And the merchants would get a percentage of that. The doves that were being sold, that was a sacrifice. If you were a, a traveling pilgrim and you didn't want to have to haul some animal or livestock with you for days and days and days over rough terrain, you could just go and buy a dove there. Doves were what poor people bought. If you wanted to buy something more substantive, if, if you were a person of resources, you might buy a goat or a lamb. But the doves were for poor people. So this was at the expense of poor people who were the least likely to be able to protest. And they were allowed right at the door of the temple to pick up these resources. And it was for the convenience of the Jews, God's chosen people. And so Jesus is upset because this very place that's supposed to support heartfelt worship is a place where God's people are getting ripped off and taken advantage of. And it's not because somebody from outside is coming in and pilfering and grabbing the finery of the temple, you know, like an invading army. This is the priests who are the insiders, the Jews themselves, are taking advantage, and they're ripping off God as well. So it was a place of corruption and commerce, and that obviously didn't make Jesus happy. But I think there's more to it than that if we take a closer look. Jesus explains why he's so mad, and he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. My house. You know, my father's house, this is supposed to be a place of prayer, not just for the Jews. Notice he didn't say for God's people. He said for all people. And so this is a place where all kinds of people from all kinds of places are supposed to be able to pray. And yet the religious leaders, the ruling Jewish council, had pushed these non-Jewish people to the side for the sake of their own convenience and profit. So there's even a little bit more to it. If you take a look at this model of the temple, I want you to, to look at this. I was in Israel a couple of years ago because of the uh, generosity of my mother-in-law. And at the Israel Museum, this is in Jerusalem, there is a 150th scale model of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And so it looks very impressive here, but if you look up at the top, if we had better resolution here, there are people standing up here on this viewing wall and you can look down and see this whole thing when you're standing there it's hundreds of yards across and you can walk around and look at it from different angles this was built based on archaeological discoveries and they've tweaked it over the years as they find and uncover more and more of the city's history the museum and the historians and the archaeologists kind of tweak it take a closer look zoom in a little bit here and what you find in the temple is something that we probably don't think of. So the original temple, which Solomon built maybe 900 years before Jesus, that occupied this basic area where there's this real tall porch with columns. And inside of there was the Holy of Holies, which is the, the place that only the high priest could go once a year, and he would make sacrifice there. And it was shrouded by a veil. And then outside of that was the court of the priest, and only the priest could go and make the daily sacrifices there. And then beyond that was the court of the Israelites. And the men who were in Israel could stand there and watch, and they could look in and see the priests doing their priestly duties. 
And then as you get a little farther out, in front of the tall porch, there's a square here. That was the court of women. And as you may know, in a very patristic culture back then, the women were allowed to get fairly close, but they couldn't go into the court of the Israelites. They could stand on the outside or they could stand on the balconies that went around it, and they could see what the men folk were doing, but they couldn't actually go in there. I don't know if you know this, but there are churches here in Loudoun County, old churches that date back to the 1700s, and you go in and you look, and there's a dividing line in the pews. And that's because the men sat on one side and the women sat on the other. You know why that is, but I'm just saying, it's not just from 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. This is something that our culture has had. So there was a court of the women. And then you see these big open areas on either side. And this is the temple mound. This is the, the temple compound. Those big open areas, they became known as the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. And this is where the money changers and the merchants selling doves were in the court of the Gentiles. It was called the court of the Gentiles because if you were not a Jew, even if you were a Jewish convert but you weren't willing to get circumcised, you could not go into the temple proper. You could only hang out in these courts, these large areas. And they became known as the court of the Gentiles so that non-Jews would have a place to come and to pray to God. They could listen. There was kind of a small wall that was, scholars think maybe it was four or five feet tall and then maybe had a, a lattice work there. And they could stand at the wall and they could kind of look in and see what was going on with the people of God. They could hear the teaching. They could hear the singing. And when the rabbis would come out or the priests would walk out, they could say, hey, 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 can I ask you a question about God? You know, you know, this thing in Scripture, what about that? Or is God mad at everybody? Or, you know, whatever kind of spiritual questions they had. They could see their neighbors coming and going and maybe have a conversation with their neighbor and say, hey, uh, I know you're one of God's chosen. Like, what is God doing in your life right now? Do you think there's hope for me? Would you pray for me? This was the place that was designated for the Gentiles, those that were far from God, distant or disconnected. Now, I want you to look at that and think about the proportions here. You look at the space that's reserved for Jewish men, and it's right in this little area. And you throw Jewish women in there, and we've got this center part. But then look at all the area over here and all the area over here that's reserved for Gentiles. When you look at that proportion, it begins to, to resonate that maybe God has a heart for people who are distant from him. Maybe it's not just about the spiritual insiders. Maybe God has a heart for those who are spiritual outsiders as well. And this is not a new idea. If we go back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, when God speaks to Abram, he says in Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, most of the Jews remember this because Abram was the father of their religion, Father Abraham. So they got the part that, wow, God's going to bless us. He's going to bless our people. But what they failed to pay attention to was they were supposed to be a blessing to others as well. And the very reason that God blessed them was in order for them to take that blessing and pass it on to someone else and to be a blessing to them. And the same is true for us today. God blesses us, not just so we can be fat and happy and content, but so that we, in turn, can bless the people around us. And then you fast forward a couple of thousand years, and you listen to what Paul said. And Paul wrote so much of the New Testament. He was a spiritual insider, if ever there was one. He was Jewish, and he had a relationship with God. But he says in 2 Corinthians 5, all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So what he's saying here earlier in the chapter is like, if you begin and build a relationship with Christ, if you decide to make him the leader and forgiver in your life, then you're like a brand new person. You're a brand new creation, a fresh start with a clean slate. And that's all from God. You know, that's not because you're such a good person. That's just a gift from God. And God has reconciled us to him through Christ. And what he's talking about that is because Jesus died on the cross, because he willingly laid down his life to cancel out the penalty for our disobedience to God, for all of the mistakes we've made, for all of the hurts we've caused other people. He's saying, you know what? Jesus has reconciled you with God in spite of your past. God's not mad at you. God is offering this free gift, and all you have to do is accept it. And if you do that, then you can be reconciled with God, and you can have him at work in your life, and his power changing you from the inside out. So because of that, then God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. That's our role. That's our responsibility to go and help other people be reconciled. And he's also entrusted to us the message of reconciliation that the way to get right with God is through Jesus Christ. It's just by receiving his gift, accepting that grace, and making him the leader and forgiver in your life. And then he says, therefore, and because of all that Jesus has done, we are Christ's ambassadors. We're his messengers. We're his representatives. We're his emissaries. And when we live, some of you guys have, have driven down Embassy Row in D.C. You know what an ambassador does, right? An ambassador represents their country, their culture, their ruler to a, a different culture. And they try to make it appealing. But at the same time, they try to value their host country. They try to get to know them. They throw parties and they invite people and they try to just kind of uh, appreciate what they can and explain why their country is such a great place. They encourage cultural exchange. Well, if we're Christ ambassadors, then part of our job is to represent him well but to do that in an appealing way, in an attractive way, in a way that makes people who are not from our native Christian culture feel comfortable. We need to create safe places for them to find out about God's love. And so with our new building, we need to create appealing and inviting spaces for people who don't yet know God. From the very beginning of the discussions, we've planned athletic fields that would be open to people from the community. And I'm hoping, you know, a lot of weekends we won't be able to find parking spaces in the parking lot because kids will be playing and parents will be there. And I can kind of imagine in my head we've got a little concession stand that's, you know, attended by some very outgoing gateway teenagers who are just very, you know, personable. And they've got on gateway T-shirts and they're letting people know, oh, yeah, all the profits go to missions or to, to help with world hunger or something like that. I hope that when we have people in our you know, like our, our atrium area, the, the big open area when you walk in the building, and they're waiting for their kids to finish with sports in the gymnasium or to, to pick up somebody. I hope there's a, like a gateway host that's just wandering around in a gateway shirt, and they're like, hey, how you doing? Uh, you guys, I don't know if you know, there's coffee over there, the bathrooms, you need anything? I don't know if you saw the bulletin board. We got a new sports league opening up next spring. You know, love for you to be a part of it. Oh, hey, is there anything I can be praying for about, you know, on your behalf? Have you guys, where are you from? Oh, you're in the neighborhood. Do you know this family? 
It'd be so cool to have somebody representing Christ being like a gateway ambassador every hour that that building is open. So we very intentionally built into the design and the concept, we need to have some space where people who don't know God can feel comfortable and they can ask questions, they can pray, they can feel like you know, they're valued even if they don't have all the answers yet. But I think beyond that, I would challenge us as a church family to think about creating some space in our own lives where in our weekend or our calendar or our budget, we're building in room for people who are distant, who are disconnected from God. That our lives are a safe place for people to ask questions and have real conversations about spiritual things, not just listen to somebody else's spiritual monologue, where they could hear about what God is doing in the lives of his people. I hope that you will build more space into your life so that people that are within your sphere of influence but they don't know God, you would engage with them and they would begin to see what God is doing in your life. I hope you would build margin into your calendar and into your budget to serve the people around you. To be ready when God opens up a need with somebody where you could step up and stand alongside them and put an arm around them. You could listen. You could encourage. You could pray for them. You could actually help them. I hope that we create space in our own lives where we welcome those who are spiritual outsiders. People from every land, every background, every personal history. And we're generous with grace and stingy with judgment, quick to listen, eager to encourage, happy to pray. God loves spiritual insiders. He loves those who already know him, but he has an enormous heart for those that don't. And if we're serious about following him, and if if we want God-honoring space in our new building and in our lives, then we have to be serious about those who don't yet know him. And we're going to take some time to think and pray about that in a couple of minutes. But first, I want to ask Ed, our senior pastor, to come up. And I want to have kind of a quick conversation with him about the new building because the fact that we signed a commitment letter and that we're ready to roll begs the question, so what's next? So I got a question for you, Ed. Years ago, when Gateway was just getting started, was that like 97, 96? When did you guys move? We moved to Northern Virginia in 96. We started first groups in 97, and our first official service was 98. Ed had not gray hair back then. Yes, and more <laughs> of it. Did you ever think you would be like, hey, we're going to have a building one day? Or has that just been such a distant thing? That... Initially, no. It wasn't on the radar screen. I mean, most of you know the story of our land. It was amazing. guy tried to sell us, sell me a piece of property, and I told him no, and we ended up with it anyway. So I, I constantly I kind tell, of feel like there's a theme that runs through Gateway's history <laughs> it's there. Not, it's not know, about planning like or cleverness, yeah. All right, so what's next for us? Uh, we've got, we've committed to a loan. What's next? We sell the West Parcel, and that enables us to close on the loan, creates the financing the bank is looking for. Okay, so this is like, that's our down payment, right. uh, basically. Essentially, yes. Okay. Yes. They're asking for, we went over this for over the past couple of weeks with folks at Gateway. That creates the financial conditions for us to close on the loan. 
And at the same time, we're running on two tracks at the same time. One is we're trying to close on the loan, so we need to sell the land. The other is we're going ahead with groundbreaking with our own money at this point. So we're looking for someone to manage the site development process for us and then you know, an engineering company to do the site development process for us. So they'll go over and break ground, and we'll begin to see trees come down and holes in the ground where pipes will go in and utilities, et cetera. So that's also next. That's good. For those of you who have been around, just want to say we are going to have bathrooms in the new building. That, that was a big deal years ago. It didn't look like that was going to happen, but we actually will have sewer will. and this pipes time, and this time we all will kinds have of bathrooms. cool stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so what's next after that then? Next after that is us giving, continuing to give, and drawing down money from the bank and building a building. Okay. So, yeah, we're within earshot now of breaking ground and building a building. All right, and then there was a third thing that you mentioned, and you called it God's favor. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so, yeah, God's favor, Alex. I mean, we've talked about this some. There are a scary amount of things that can go wrong. Uh, You and I both know of a church that got into this process, and very early on they found out they had bad dirt. So they had to haul away truckloads of dirt. And like $900,000 worth of bad dirt. Yes, <laughs> yes. This was, a, this was not cheap bad dirt. This yeah. was very expensive bad dirt. We don't know what our bad dirt is or could be, but there are all of those kinds of possibilities. There are still things that the, the county has to give us a grading permit so that we can go break ground. We need favor with the county. We need, you know, I think it's still within the realm of possibility. People like Rick and Matt could volunteer to do this work for us for free. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. so we Maybe just... we won't count on that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> we need God's favor in all the details, and not just so that things won't go wrong, but that things will, be, will go smoothly and just a million things that need to happen. We need God's favor. What are some challenges that you think we're going to face? So, like, if my son, who's 27, was going to buy a house, and he's all excited, yeah, put a down payment on it, sign the contract, I would say, hey, just be aware, you know, between now and closing, there's all kinds of stuff that comes up, and, you know, so be prepared. So what are some challenges that we might need to be prepared for in the next couple of months? This past year, we know well, it's overwhelming to say it, I've had the opportunity to say it repeatedly in our small group setting. Gateway, and I'm looking at the ones who are responsible for this. Gateway has been extraordinarily generous. Or better, I think the the right theological way to say that is God has been generous through us. And we can't grow weary in doing good. We have to continue to give. This year will be even more challenging. So I think our giving, I, I think... There will be stresses on potentially the unity of our body, and I think we need to stay together and stay focused. And then getting the work done. We need some people to, especially now, you know, thank you, Anu and and, uh, Jan and Tim. We're going to need a second and then a third and a fourth layer of people to step up and volunteer and do work for us. And then all of us to remember, Alex, that it's kind of all hands on deck. You know, you and I have been talking for months about how we need to begin the message at Gateway. Everybody's on the greeter team. And we're all responsible. So we've kind of got to all step up and do our job, whatever it is that God has called us to do. That's going to be the challenge for us. What 
would you say to somebody that, like today, this is their very first gateway service, and they're sitting here going like, wow, I don't know, they stand up and sit down a lot, and they, you know, <laughs> they got a lot of different moving parts in their service, really like that worship leader. No, what, so what would you say to somebody like that that's here today for the very first time? Thanks for coming. We're really glad to have you. I would like to say that today's service is much odder than typical. That would be a lie. It is not much odder than typical. We're doing our best to honor God, and we believe that this next step for us is going to be the most important thing. You know, if the world doesn't come to an end and Jesus doesn't come again for another 300 years, this may be the most important thing that this church uh, gets to do. And we really believe that God has positioned us to be a unique church at a unique time in a unique place. We're right on the outskirts of one of the most important cities in the world. And we get to bear witness to the stuff that we get to create, part of the court of the Gentiles. Join us. But we're not looking. Look, if you're visiting, you need to know. We're not looking for people to come sit. We need you to dive in to the deep end of the pool. There are not enough of us (laughs) to do what God has called us to do. So we, we need you. We need you to come get invested. So scary, but it's the reality of where we are right now. Uh, I'll put in a quick plug for those of you that haven't been around Gateway for all that long. Maybe you've been the last year, 15 months after we started our capital campaign. If you would like to know more about the building, more about, you know, the decisions that led up to that, and more about how you might be a part of it, we we definitely don't want to exclude anybody. Uh, We're doing a lunch after church on December 13th, or whatever the second Sunday in December is, and there's more info about that that you'll see over the next couple of weeks. But we'd love to have you come over to the church office, have lunch, and just hear about this project. You have a chance to ask questions and kind of pray through and figure out, is this something that I want to jump into or not? So want to make sure that you're aware of that. We're going to close with prayer. I want to give you guys time to pray about what God-honoring space looks like in your life and in the life of our church, and then to pray about some of these needs. So Will's going to put a couple of slides up here, and I want you to pray with your eyes open. But we're going to take about three minutes here in silence, and you can look at these questions, and I want you to have a conversation in your heart with God. And not just you talk to Him, but you listen for what He might be saying to you as you scroll through these slides and think about what God has ahead for us. So let's just take a couple of minutes and pray. Hey, God, I am so grateful that even though I was a spiritual outsider, you showed grace to me. And you put people in my life and spaces around me where I could be challenged and encouraged to head in your direction. And you met me with grace. And even though you have so much work to still do in me, you've been faithful. And you love me in spite of my failures, and my flaws. I know for me personally, in my prayer life, I dominate. I'm thinking about what I want, what I need, what I can see, or or what my family needs. And I pray, God, that you would change my heart, that you would change our hearts, that we would be thinking about what you desire, what's on your mind, what the needs are of, of people who are distant or disconnected from you, that are in the world around us, that we rub shoulders with every day. I pray that you would bring to mind ways that we could create that kind of space in our life 
that is open to those who don't know you and that honors you in the way that we do it. And then we pray, uh, trusting in you and you alone, that this building process would move forward, that every step of the way we would be at your pace and that we would be moving in your direction at your timing. And when obstacles come up, we're going to trust you. And we won't be afraid. Our confidence is in you, Lord. And more than anything, we want you to be honored at the end of this road. In all that we do, we want you to get the glory. We say thanks to you, and we pray in Jesus' name.